Welcome to the Fathers and Sons podcast. I am so, so happy that you are here. Today is going to be absolutely awesome. I'm having my uncle on the show, the amazing, the wonderful Kelly Nash. And today is going to be awesome. Kelly is also a radio host, not to mention, as I said earlier, my uncle. <laughs> but he's had an incredible life, an incredible life working with musicians from all walks of life. He's done a lot of amazing things, and he's an amazing guy. I'm so, so excited for this episode, and it's going to be so much fun. Hope you guys enjoy the show, and it's going to be a fun, fun ride today. What's up, Kelly? Welcome to the Fathers and Sons podcast, man. How are you doing today? I'm fantastic, Caleb. Glad to be on your show. Yeah, man. It's great to have you, man. So, I mean, you're having a great day so far? Uh, yeah, every day is a great day in radio because it beats working. <laughs> I totally get that. You've been in radio for a long time, man. Pretty but... much my entire life. I, yeah. Um, I started while I was still in high school and as a senior. And other than uh, three years um, at, the at the beginning of the 2000s, 2000 to 2003, where I worked for a record company, other than that, brief break i've been in radio ever since so that would be uh, 1985 is when i started so I'm, I'm not sure it's a lot of years now i haven't yeah. quite added it all <laughs> up and you know there were some years where i was working just part-time in radio yeah um it wasn't always a full-time job when, when i was working part-time i used to tell people uh that i was uh working these other jobs to support yeah. my radio habit you know because <laughs> It wasn't, it wasn't easy to get in. You right. Know, it's, it's, it's hard to get launched. Yeah. I totally get that, man. You've yeah. been, I mean, you've been, you've been working for a long time, just like in different fields and different types. I mean, you work with musicians and radio. You've lived a colorful life, man. <laughs> well, you know, when, when you, uh, you go into this industry, I would imagine, I don't know this to be yeah. true of everybody, but I think, uh, there's probably a couple of things that are uh, universal for most people who end up in this type of a, of a business. And one would yeah. be, we're probably uh, socially awkward to begin with. And so you look to, if you're a radio personality, you like the idea of being able to hide behind a microphone to build this yeah. persona. Probably true for an actors too, I would imagine it. A lot of them don't feel comfortable with who they are. So yeah. they can create characters. Uh -huh. And um, so when you meet a lot of actors, if there, there's if you meet them in a in a social setting, they're on. You know what I'm saying? Meaning that they're in almost in some sort of a character like, hey, it's good to meet you. What's happening? That's yeah. not who they really are. <laughs> and then if you meet them in a non-social setting, like if they're just kind of hanging out with their friends or something, they're probably much quieter. And that's yeah. true for for what I was like as a, as a young man. And it's also, uh, I think, you know, for me, I was attracted to being around celebrities. I, I, I didn't know if I could be a celebrity per se, yeah. but I knew that I liked being around celebrities. And so again, I wouldn't, you know, if you're a young person trying to figure out a career path, this is not a good one because my, <laughs> <laughs> if you're, if you're, if you're looking for something quote unquote glamorous, it's probably not going to pay well. There yeah. are some people at the top of the food chain who make a ton of money, but most people in a glamorous industry are doing it because they think it's glamorous. It's like, I don't know if you ever heard the old joke, 
Um, there's two guys there. Uh, their job is to shovel the manure at the circus. And, they're, you know, they're always just sitting there behind the elephants and whatever. They're shoveling, shoveling the manure. And uh, one guy says to the other guy, after years of doing it, I think I've had enough of this. I'm, I'm quitting today. This is my last day. You got to come with me. We're leaving together. The guy says, what? Get out of show business? Yeah. That's literally what it's like for most people. You're just shoveling manure all day. But you get to be around the glamour. So, yeah. um I've been fortunate in the sense that not only did I get to be around a lot of the glamorous uh, aspects of show business, yeah. but then I also didn't have to, my entire career wasn't like it was the first five or eight years or whatever it was, where I was just really doing menial garbage jobs, you know, getting people coffee type of stuff, which was, it was, it I didn't look at it as horrible at the time because I was just yeah. so focused on getting in. Um, but, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a it's it's not a way to make a living. And yet I see lots of people who do it their entire lives. I remember at Universal uh, in the 2000s, like I said, I'd be in New York and there'd be people who had those types of jobs who'd been doing it 20, 25 years. They're like in their 40s and they're oh. getting me my mail. And I'm thinking, <laughs> my gosh, dude, like. You must want something more than this, but I guess either they weren't capable of getting to it, or they didn't know how to get to it, or yeah. whatever. So they they didn't want to not work in New York hanging around mm -hmm. celebrities, and so they just kept doing it. That's so interesting, man. Yeah, I thought so too. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> I feel like at some point you would feel like like this is kind of I've aged out of this it's time to do something else, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I don't want to say because there, there might be somebody listening to this or watching this and they're they might be in a similar, you know, uh, situation yeah. at this moment in their life. And I don't I don't want to I don't want to say it in a way that comes off as like egotistical or mean, yeah. you know, mean spirited or whatever. But I really believe that a lot of those people that I met along the way that the only word I could think of is like a lack of courage. They didn't they didn't want to leave what they had for the unknown. And so they were just stuck. They were just stuck doing the same thing over and over and over again. And it couldn't have been satisfying at, at any level. Um, and they, you know, they got in and they couldn't get out. And, and I mean, because it takes guts to take a jump. It takes guts to say, I'm not doing this anymore. And I'm going to go see what else is on the other side. Yeah. That's good, man. <laughs> That's good. Man. And the fact that, like, I mean, you've made it so far and doing something that you enjoyed as a kid, like going way, way, way back. You know, we I know you as Kelly Nash, radio host, uncle. I was going to say, hopefully you know me more as uncle than you know me as radio host. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know, but I see we see you on, you know, for those who don't know, I mean, if you're in the Midlands area, you'll probably, you've probably seen Kelly Nash on some commercials, lots of JT's, Kia and stuff. But like a lot of people don't know you as like you know your story so i mean kelly to go back before radio and you know before like having the courage to even jump in this career what was it like you know growing up as a kid and what was your life your early beginnings like well you know i grew up in a different era than than today's era so yeah when when i talk about my childhood you know because i'm i'm almost 54 uh when i was you know 10 you know, 50 years ago, 
<laughs> that's a and I talk about stuff from that era to somebody who's in their 20s or 30s. They they tend to think that my life was harsh. My life wasn't. My life was exactly like every else, you know, m- most other kids that I knew. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I think that people who grow up um, in a neighborhood, everybody's life is very similar. There may be ex- extreme differences inside of it, but it's very rare. Most parents that I knew had drinking problems. Mo- everybody I knew had a parent that smoked. Half or more of the kids that I knew, parents got a divorce at some point. Yeah. Um, when I was young and little, kindergarten through you know fifth grade or so, most kids' moms stayed home. By the time I was in high school, most kids' mothers were working. And that could be because they'd already gotten a divorce or yeah. the economics of the 70s were forcing women into the workplace. A lot of women went begrudgingly. Some of them were excited about it freedom. Um, So my mom started working, I think I was in like fifth grade, fourth grade when my mom started working. Um, And she tells the story about how I was so upset because who's going to make me a snack when they come home from school? (laughs) You know, that was what I was used to as a little kid. And then, you know, we became what's known as the latchkey kids. Uh, You know, every kid that that had a mom that worked, we all had like a a shoestring that we wore that had our, our house key. And we'd wear it like a necklace and their moms would make us wear that. So we wouldn't lose it. Um, and then we get, you can get into the house. And so that's, that's uh, how you could identify who was who back in the early seventies. Yeah. But my, my life was um, I think typical and um, you know, it, it, but then inside of that, because everybody's different. Uh, so my circumstances were similar. We were lower middle class. So everybody in East Hartford that lived on my side of town in East Hartford, Connecticut was lower middle class. Yeah. Uh, there was another side of town that was upper middle class. And those kids went to a different school for the most part. Um, when uh, in the seventies, you know, most of us that I knew played sports. So I played every sport that you could play, uh, whether it was a, on a, organized uh level you know whether it was like little league or or soccer or whatever um and then i would also play when i wasn't playing those sports i was also playing like wiffle ball and badminton i was constantly involved in some sort of like athletic uh endeavor as were most of the kids skateboarding became huge uh in the 70s and so you know i did that most nights, uh, you know, I, I played every sport, golf, whatever you could think of. I was playing it as a kid swimming. I loved it all. I just wanted to be outdoors playing a sport. Um, but inside, like I said, uh, that dynamic, everybody's individual. So I was, um, a shy person who athletics allowed me, uh, almost forced me to be social with other people, uh, because I wouldn't, I wasn't uh, capable of starting a conversation uh, with anybody unless it was around what we were doing. And if I wasn't playing a sport, I wasn't doing anything. So there was, I had nothing to talk about. So I liked sports for, for two reasons. One, I was pretty good at them. And two, it gave me something to talk about. Um, I probably fought more than other kids, uh, even though, again, in the 70s, everybody seemed to be in a fist fight. I can't, re- 
I, I, it would seem like every day of the week, somebody was fighting somebody in my school. Wow. Um, I was probably that kid. <laughs> Maybe once a month, I was in a fist fight. Once wow. every two months, if it was a good year. Um, but that was because I was kind of a target because I was taller. Uh, so old upperclassmen wanted to pick on me. And my, I remember before I started high school uh, in 1981, the principal visited my parents and told them that I was going to be a target and, and uh, wow. said, you know, he needed to be ready. for them. So they yeah. told me about that. And so my like first or second day of school, they they did a thing called uh, what they call it. it. It was called uh, pinball where the upperclassmen would line up in a hallway and they would yell pinball. And then they would kind of identify who it was by what they were wearing or whatever. For me, it was pinball big red because I was I was literally the same height that I am now. So I went into high school yeah. at 14 at 6'1". Oh. And um, so and I had bright red hair back then. Which I absolutely hated that hair. And probably why I don't have any now. I just hated it so much it fell out of my head. But uh, yeah, they pushed the they, oh. one kid would push you towards the other lockers, and they'd push you back and forth down the hallway. But I knew to be on the lookout for it. So the second kid, or maybe the third kid, I can't remember exactly. I got pushed, and then when I I was able, I knew to get my balance, and I grabbed the first kid I could get that was obviously involved, and I picked him up and I smashed his face with my forearm and broke his nose. Got called to the principal's office, but it set a tone like. I am not going to be played with. Um, I'm, yeah. I'm an angry young man, and I am, I am, I'm going to fight every kid in the school if I have to. <laughs> and I did it in eighth grade. I did it in seventh grade. I was constantly in fights. Um, wow. So that was part of my dynamic as a child. But um, as I got into high school, uh, the, the shyness continued. And to, uh, I think, make up for that, um, especially like on a, my parents sent me to a, an all guys high school. It wasn't technically an all guys high school. It was actually, really? yeah, it was a vocational school. Wow. And so it was a weird thing where I would go to three weeks of shop class and then three weeks of like what you would call regular school. Mm. So like, you know, you'd have math and English and whatever for three weeks. And then you would have none of it for three weeks. And in that three weeks, like for me, I was in something called the, uh, environmental control class. And so for me, it was learning how to work on air conditioners and how to work on refrigerators and, and that sort of stuff. And I absolutely hated it. And like I said, it wasn't technically an all-guys school, but I think we had like five girls in, this, in my senior class. Wow. So there was, you know, it, there was nobody to date. Let's just put it that <laughs> yeah. way. Um, and I... Um, so I didn't really get a chance to even practice talking to girls at that point. Wow. And so on the weekends, I would go to these high school parties. And I think to make up for the shyness, uh, <laughs> I would, that's when I started drinking really a lot. Because I noticed that when you get hammered, um, yeah. two things happen. One, people want to talk to you. You are the center of attention. So, and no matter what you say or do, it can all be written off the next day as, dude, I was drunk, you know, and legitimately, I didn't remember a lot of stuff that I did. But even if I did, I could say, well, I don't even remember that. Even, you know what I'm saying? So it was like yeah. um, every Friday and Saturday, I was hammered pretty much from about 1981 
through high school for, you know, I graduated in 85. So that yeah. 40 year, I was hammered every weekend um, at every high school party I could go to. And then uh, um, it, thankfully it didn't lead into an alcoholism thing. It wasn't like I needed alcohol. I yeah. needed alcohol to be, to stop being shot is why I was drinking. And I, I mean, I'm not going to say I didn't enjoy being drunk because I actually did. I enjoyed the camaraderie of like, I can remember happy moments of singing like Billy Joel songs with like a bunch yeah. of other dudes. And you're like, ah, the piano man. Like, like that was a good time. It was I mean, even now I remember it as a good time, but uh, it, it never, unlike so many of my friends from that era, uh, I didn't end up in AA, you know, a mess. Thankfully, yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's thankfully, good <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, in all of that, uh, I was able to also launch a career in radio in high school, which uh, you know certainly led because I, I also knew that I didn't fit in. Like I mentioned, that we all seemed similar. I didn't fit in with those kids. Yeah, the kids that I grew up with. Uh, great people, you know, in their own way, but they, I never had the same, uh, feelings about a lot of things that they did. And I, it was obvious to me as, you know, early as like maybe eighth grade, seventh grade, somewhere in there, it became yeah. very obvious in high school that I didn't fit in, um, in what my aspirations were, what I yeah. wanted out of life. And, and, I wanted to travel. I wanted to see places. I wanted to be someone. Uh, none of them seemed interested in any of that. And they all seemed to, they wanted to mock me for it. So I kind of kept my mouth shut about it and uh, said, this, uh, you know, just kind of tried to fit in, you know, like most high school kids, you're just trying yeah. to <laughs> get below the radar. I don't, I don't want to be noticed too much here. And, uh, you know, on the weekends, uh, I started kind of, thankfully, I'd gotten in with a radio station and um, I had to interview a celebrity for an English class. And I picked the, the, the morning show at a rock station that I thought was really good. They were called Smith and Barber. And um, they liked me and they invited me to come back and pull records for them. And that's, you know, again, so long ago that it legitimately was vinyl records and they would, you know, put them on a needle and we'd play them on the radio. And I uh, started doing that once a week, but it also opened up this opportunity for me to start using studios. And then they helped me get another, I got like a legitimate job where, because I, I wasn't getting paid for that. I got money to uh, do phone calls, uh, phone call research for a top 40 station in Hartford, Connecticut called KISS. 95.7 and uh, so I was making you know I think I think I did that on Tuesday night one night a week I remember that one night a week I would do that I think I got paid minimum wage which I'm thinking was 337 an hour back then and uh, we would do it for like you know two hours maybe three hours it was a, it wasn't long because you couldn't you couldn't call before like six o'clock at night and I know we couldn't call after nine so maybe six to nine one night a week um, so again, you're talking about an $18 a week job. That <laughs> wasn't like going to do a whole lot, but it allowed me to get to a studio because they said, well, you, if you want to practice making stuff, you can use one of our production studios. So I made tapes and uh, I would go in all weekend. Uh, you know, sometimes I would just go in there and just really 
want to practice trying to speak like a, like a radio personality spoke back those days. And, um, got some professionals who worked there to listen to my stuff, critique it. And, and so I would do that. Uh, I started swapping out going to parties to do that. I felt more at home alone in a studio than I did, you know, with a hundred kids at a kegger. Yeah. Wow, man. That's really cool. Yeah. That's really cool. So, I mean, like, even back then you had like a passion for doing radio. Was that start like when you were a kid as well? Like, I mean, even like younger, like when you were a little kid? No. Uh, I mean, my first memories of the radio, I, you know, I don't know how many other kids are as dumb as I was, but I felt, <laughs> I, I thought that the artists actually played live in the radio station. So <laughs> I would hear the beach boys on one radio station, yeah. switch over to another and they'd be there. And I'm like, how did they get across? How did they get to the next building? How did they yeah. do that? Um, but I, I enjoyed radio um, a lot as a kid, maybe more than others. Uh, I can yeah. remember a conversation I had with one of my cousins who was from Pennsylvania uh, and we were at a family reunion. And I told, I remember telling him about my favorite radio station. It yeah. was called 96 TICFM. And at that time, it would have been the late seventies, like around 78. And they were doing something, which I didn't know at the time, but I, I learned it later. It's called the hot hits format, which was a nationally uh, set up thing by a guy named Paul, a consultant named Paul Joseph. And it had a, it had the same jingle package uh, in every one of his hot hit formats. And, you know, it was to me. It was so exciting. the The DJ energy level was through the roof. It, these guys they weren't screaming, but they were very amped up people, and they were funny. and And you had to be quick. Um, radio DJs at that time would probably talk on average twelve seconds a break, um, and to get in content and make it creative in twelve seconds. Uh, is a, that's a craft and these guys were really good at it. And, uh, so I can remember, like I said, around 78, where I would have been, what, 11 years old, something like that, that I, I can remember having that conversation, like, man, we got a radio station in Hartford called 96 ticks. And it is so fun to listen to. And I described it to him. I described it so well that he could, he understood what I was talking about. And he said, we have a station similar to that. And, uh, I think he lived in Harrisburg at the time. I don't, I don't. I should have looked it up what station that was, but I didn't. But anyway, um, I so I was passionate about it, but not like I thought it was going to be a career. Yeah. Uh, when I was, uh, when I started getting older in high school and recognizing <clears throat> that I hated the trade, yeah, I knew I was not good with my hands from the time <laughs> I was a child. Like my yeah. stepfather made me help him, um, partially, I think, because he really was concerned that I wasn't uh, developing as a man. Um, and to him, he was born in like 1934 or something. Oh, he was wow. born in the thirties. Uh, yeah. He was concerned, you know, because every man needed to know how to build a house. Every man needed yeah. to know how to change the oil on the car. Every man. So that's part of the definition of being a man. And I wasn't lining up with that definition because I, I, I didn't even like getting my hands dirty. Uh, I did if I was playing baseball or football or something, but I didn't want to be in Greece. I didn't like it. I didn't, I didn't not only not have a passion for it, for some reason, my mind didn't seem to understand the things he would tell me on how to, how to 
do stuff. I'd forget, whatever. So I knew I didn't like it. Then I go into the school that they're sending me to, and I'm compl- I am the worst student in the classroom. <laughs> and, um, and I also wasn't like a good traditional student. You know what I'm saying? So I realized yeah. I've got a I've got a legitimate problem on my hands, right? I cannot <laughs> go on out and do a trade. I'm not going to be a mechanic or a plumber. I'm not going to be able right. to do that. And at the same time, I'm not smart enough or inclined enough to be a scientist or something like that. Yeah. So what am I going to do with my life? And then I, I can, I remember having legitimate fears about adulthood because, you know, he started, you know, talking to me about, you know, look at the mortgage on this house. All right. And I don't know what the mortgage was. I know that they bought the house for like $27,000 yeah. in 1970 or something. So, you know, whatever the mortgage was, but he was like, there's more than just the mortgage. There's insurance, there's power bills, there's car payments, there's health insurance, there's, you know, he's going on and on. And and I'm thinking to myself, who could ever afford this? Like to just be an adult. I don't think that I can ever be an adult because I don't think I'm ever going to make that much money. Yeah. I don't know how I can make that much money, especially when I realize I'm not capable of doing what people need to do in order to be an adult. <laughs> so I was really concerned. At the yeah. same time, though, I had this weird conversation with my grandfather. And he was, he's from Italy and he's, you know, he, he didn't speak Italian around me because when he came to America, his parents said, we're never going to speak Italian again. We're, we're only wow. speak English uh, because we got we to gotta fit in. So he's, yeah. but, but he was so high on the idea of the American dream came through education. And, you know, I'm sitting here with legitimate D average in high school, like not, not exaggerate, barely getting by. I am probably <laughs> going to graduate last in my class. Somebody's got to be the bottom of the barrel. That was going to be me. And he's looking at my report cards and he's, his favorite term was you flat. And he's saying, you know, you flathead, you're going to go nowhere. You're not going to get into the college. And, um, I, but I, and I don't know if it was anger or whatever, but my mind was kind of uh, looking for an excuse or looking for something. And I, I had never said it or even thought it, I don't think, before that conversation. But I, I recognized in my attempt to have a comeback of some kind that inside that school body i was shy but i every you couldn't find somebody who didn't like me right yeah. and that's not saying i was the most popular i wasn't the most popular right but everybody liked me which you wouldn't be able to say that about the most popular kid there were people in that school who hated that right? yep. <laughs> but but everybody liked me i got along with the the, the what we call burnouts the people who just did drugs all day I got along yeah. with them. I got along with the jocks. I got along with the nerds. I treated people well. I had a personality that could get along with everybody. Yeah. Uh, I seemed to be able to just, you know, I could fit in with, with, with any group of people. And I said that to him in a way. And I said, you know, there's, there's got to be a way for that to turn into something that can make money. I don't know what it is, but that can make money. And he was, you know, he was beside, you don't know what you're talking about. Um, and I don't know what, I don't even know what career path I was even potentially thinking about at that point, you know, 
possibly a sales job? Because I would think, because kind of what I do on the radio is a sales job, right? That's, I have a, I have, I have a two-part sales job every day, or whether it's on TV or radio or whatever it is. If you're a media personality, if you're doing a, what you're doing, whatever it is, you, you, it's a two-part sales job. The one part is I've got to sell an audience on this is a product that they want to consume. This is interesting. It's informative, but I'm, so many people have that information already available. So why, or they're putting it out. So why am I going to consume it from you, right? If I'm listening to an entertainment talk show, everybody's got that information, right? I can just go on Twitter and see it. So why am I going to watch E as opposed to TMZ or whatever it is? It's because they have sold me that their style of delivering the news or that information is a better way for me. I enjoy it more, whatever it is. Same thing with, you know, political talk shows, sports talk shows, whatever you're delivering, that information already exists. So as a host, you're trying to figure out a way to have a brand that is consumed, that people want to consume it. Uh, Then on the flip side, if you're going to get paid for that, which is the end goal, I also have to be able to market something to them that they're going to then go buy. I mean, Rush Limbaugh was constantly telling people, I am not in the business of politics. I talk about politics in a way to yeah. sell products. He was all about selling you a, a mattress or, a, you know, or sheets or <laughs> whatever it was right. he was trying to sell. So that's, I guess, in the back of my mind, I thought I could be a salesperson. Whether yeah. I didn't, I, I wasn't thinking TV or radio. I was probably thinking... You know, at that point, I could get a job selling, you know, something to a store. I could be like a, yeah. a Pepsi salesman or something. I don't know what I, exactly what I was going to sell. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. So in the long term, I was right. I do sell stuff. But yeah. just not the way to reach <laughs> That's really cool, man. That's so interesting. That's really, that's really, I never even thought about like what you do as like a sales type. Of, but the way you say it, it makes me, I see it the way you kind of see it now. But like going back, yeah, going back to what you're, you were talking about, like your grandpa, stepfather, what was your relationship like with the males in your family, like growing up as a kid? Well, so, you know, I never met my real father, Yeah, um, which was, you know, I I guess kind of a big deal. I didn't make it as big a deal until I got older. Um, When I was younger, I accepted my stepfather as my father. Um, I knew that I had been born with a different last name and that I suddenly switched my last name. <laughs> so there was that. Um, um, but he, he was, uh, I don't want to say, like, I don't want to make him out to be worse than he was. And when you say words like abuse, people automatically go to the worst possible. And I, I have probably six the eight stories that I could tell that are pretty bad stories because he also drank a lot. So, you know, when, when somebody's drunk and they're tend to be on the mean side or possibly, and I, you know, as he got older, I tried to reconcile with him. Like, what was he thinking back in those days? I know he was very frustrated by life. He felt like life had shortchanged him and all that. And then he's kind of stuck with this kid who's, nothing like he wanted for his son i'm a huge disappointment from his perspective because i don't do i can't do any of the things that he wanted 
nor did I have any of the interests that he had. He was all about, you know, riding in boats. He wanted to be in a boat club. And I, I wanted to just play, you know, basketball all day or whatever. And he couldn't give a rip about sports. Um, so we didn't have anything really in common. He'd like to build stuff with his hands. I didn't want to do any of that. I dragged my feet around him whenever I had to and Then I became very afraid of him uh, because, you know, in those days, it wasn't uncommon. You know, uh, what, if you tell it to somebody who's like under the age of 30 that your dad would backhand you, you know, for looking at him. I mean, to my friends, that was normal. Like we, yeah. we knew not to look at our, our dads that way. Because if you'd look, if you gave him a look like, oh, what are you going to do? You're going to find out what he's going to do. And he's gonna, yeah. basically, I think their attitude was, oh, you want to act like you're a man? Well, then I'll hit you like you're a man. Today, that stuff gets you arrested. In those days, <laughs> that was called parenting. Um, right. So I had a very fearful uh, relationship with my with my stepdad. I, I didn't like being around. Him. Uh, ironically, in retrospect, when I think about him. When we had one-on-one times, I feel like it was better than when I was around my mom, which I, you know, I don't know why, but maybe he felt like, I don't know. I really can't even figure that out. But yeah, when, when we were one-on-one, it seemed better than now, if he was drunk, then it was, you know, then it was horrible. Didn't matter who (laughs) was drunk. Um, He was not a happy drunk, so to speak. Um, Now my grandfather, that's my grandfather on my mother's side. Yeah. Okay. Um, he was probably my favorite person in the world back in those days. Oh. He would do anything. I mean, anything for me. Uh, so he would come up every Thursday and uh, every Thursday he would sleep over. We would do something fun on Thursday afternoons after school. Um, Friday. I got involved in a bowling league. So he would take me bowling every Friday. After bowling, we would go to the grocery store and we'd pick out like a thing of ice cream and then we'd come home and uh, mom would have dinner made and we'd eat ice cream. And he, he's the one who taught me how to golf. Uh, I just loved being around. And he was very, you know, other than that little story where I'm just telling you, you know, he's all very (laughs) frustrated with my grades. But for the most part, he was a very encouraging, person he was way old i mean if i if i remember right he was like 45 when my mother was born wow wow and he was like very old yeah um, and back in the 70s old people were older than they are now so yeah. um you know he smoked two packs a day you know wow. so he looked yeah. old when he was like 30 i'm sure and then yeah. you know he didn't drink liquor uh, like most people did back then, which I think people say, well, why do people just say, you know, older people back then look older than older people today. And I think it was because they all drank and they all smoked. <laughs> Every one of them did. And so I think that that obviously makes your skin look horrible and whatnot. So, yeah, you know, 50, if you were 35 back in those days, you lo- looked like you were 50 today. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he was, uh, like I said, a very old man, uh, couldn't, really get around as well as he probably well and i know he could have back in in, in, his, uh, in his prime but he would still take the time to always throw a football throw a baseball you know something where he didn't have to run he would do yeah it. and uh which was more than most people would do as a kid 
So the fact yeah. that he'd come on out and throw a baseball with me and he'd stay out there until I got tired, you know, wow. which I'm sure he was exhausted, but he would just yeah throwing it, you know, and I'd keep keep playing with him. So I yeah. loved I loved him. But yeah. uh, you know, he he unfortunately he got divorced when I was like, I want to say three or four. Wow. Yeah. I remember being very young when I got divorced. My grandma. Yeah. And then wow. she moved, she moved to Vermont and she married another guy who I also liked. I liked her second husband a ton. He was a really nice guy. Yeah. Um, but I would only see him when I would go to Vermont, which was, you know, maybe a couple of weeks a year. Uh, yeah. But he always treated me really well as well. So, um, yeah, I, I had a, uh, uh, an unhealthy fear of my stepfather and uh, a lot of love for those two guys. Yeah. That's really cool, man. So there was like your biggest role models, like growing up as a kid. Yeah, I guess. I mean, yeah. I don't know that I had a role model per se as a child. Yeah. My role models would have probably been, you know, like Reggie Jackson or something, you know, something, yeah. stupid. You know, something <laughs> that I, it's not a real role model. Um, yeah. But that's, I mean, if you would ask me when I was eight, you know, if you're going to be a, a dad or a husband or who would you like to be like? Yeah. I would have picked, you know, one of those two guys. Yeah. <laughs> that makes, that makes a lot of sense, man. So, I mean, going back to like your, with your birth father, did you ever like think about him? Like as a kid, did anybody ever talk about him? Like in your family? interesting I, I remember a couple of conversations that like my older cousins had yeah. i don't have any first cousins i have second cousins because yeah yeah well, i have a very weird family in the sense that like <laughs> my mother was an only child uh it, it, i'm an only child so i didn't get any first cousins yeah um, but i you know i treated them as my cousins and yeah. uh, the older ones that, that uh, were around um, my, my birth father, they knew him. And I heard a, a couple of times, like, I don't, they weren't talking to me. They were yeah. talking to my mom and I just happened to be within earshot. I don't think they would yeah. have said those things had they seen me around, but I was, I knew from their discussions that he was a, uh, was a bad dude. Mm, interesting. Bad dude. So he was, he was, you know, big into the, the drugs and the alcohol and yeah. you know, cheated on my mom, I guess. I don't, I don't really know all the dirty secrets that happened. Yeah. I just know that my mother was the one who, you know, I, I think I was like three months old when they left, my mom left. I, I, however old I was, I was in diapers. And yeah. it was, I don't, I know I wasn't one. So that's how long their union lasted, a very short period of time. And she had had enough. And, uh. You know, so she had, you know, you talk about have to, you have to have courage. My mother had courage and she said yeah. enough of this crap. And she packed me up and she took off for her parents' house. And, uh, you know, I wanted, you know, that's one of those things you're thankful for because had she stayed there, I'm sure I would have been abused. Yeah. Uh, and, and we would have had a miserable. Yeah. Uh, so, so thankfully she had the guts to, to get us out of that mess. <sighs> That's really good, man. Life would be totally different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You never know. Yeah. You never know what's going to happen uh, if you say yes or no to certain situations. But yeah, um, you know, sometimes the, the writing's on the wall and people want to call it a forgery. If it's that obvious that somebody's, you know, abusing alcohol and drugs. And yeah. 
you know, at, at that point, for the good of you and your child, you have to leave. Now, I'm not saying you have to get a divorce. What I'm saying is you have to leave. And then you can tell that uh, that person, if you, you know, we'll come back if yeah. you're going to get cleaned up. Once you make the steps to get cleaned up and you've been, you know, at those, those types of people have been given warning after warning after this is my last straw. And then, you know, they know that it's not the last straw because they watch you. You just keep staying yeah. around. So then you finally leave. Perhaps that will spur them on to getting the help that they need. But, uh, you know, to, to, to raise a child in, in an abusive environment where the um, one, one partner is just, you know, at, at minimum not contributing. Yeah. But probably more likely uh, exhibiting uh, behavior that is unsafe for the child. That, that, that's irresponsible. You, you owe it to the kid to get out of it. Yeah, that's true, man. And I think a lot of, you know, a lot of people, like you were saying, they suffer because of that, you know, that choice, the lack of courage to or the, the comfort that may be in there of staying versus like the unknown, you know. Yeah. Yeah, like your life could have been totally different had mom made a different choice. Been like, you know what, I'm gonna stay. Yeah, and and you talk about um, there. there I, I mean, obviously, there's a couple of reasons that you just mentioned. I don't know yeah. what's going to happen if I leave. This individual is making enough money so yeah. that we live maybe not the life I want to live, but yeah. at least it's it's not poverty. Um, but there's also the idea of um, some people will say, well, it's better to have two parents than one. Yeah. I would say bull crap. Bull crap <laughs> on that. Total bull crap. If the right. if, if one of the two parents is 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 in that state of mind, then you're better off without it. You're literally better off because the damage that can be done by a violent person or just someone who's reckless with their language around your child. Yeah. And by language, I don't mean they use the f bomb. I mean yeah. the way they can destroy a, a child's psyche. Yeah, um, better off getting them away from that. So yeah, don't yeah. stay for the sake of the child. If the if the ones be now, people also stay married uh, uh, because they're unhappy. I I'm all for that. If you're unhappy, that's okay. <laughs> if if you're both treating the child well, stay married. <laughs> yeah, that'd be my. It is better to have two parents than one. But right, not but not if one of them's uh, is in that state of mind. Yeah, that's that's really good, man. All right, folks, that's it for this one. Be sure to tune in next Friday for part two to this amazing episode. You don't want to miss it. See you there.